0: Turn with me to Exodus chapter 21, Exodus chapter 21. As we continue through the book of Exodus, we are in what's called the book of the covenant, which is a subset of Exodus. First half of Exodus is about God redeeming his people from Egypt and slavery. Second half is after he brings them to Mount Sinai. So he redeems them, saves them from slavery. Then he creates a new people. And he creates his new people by means of a covenant, where he says, if you obey me, I'll be your God. And the covenant is laid out. It's summarized in the Ten Commandments, and then it's explained further as we go through Exodus chapter 21, 22, 23. And this section, so so far we've seen laws concerning slavery, violence. This is about stealing. Remember the Bible says, thou shalt not steal. He's going to explain a little bit more what that means. So we're going to read Exodus chapter 21, verses 33, down through chapter 22 and verse 15. And God says, And if a man opens a pit, or if a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls in it, the owner of the pit shall make it good. He shall give money to their owner, but the dead animal shall be his. If one man's ox hurts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and divide the money from it, and the dead ox they shall also divide. Or if it was known that the ox tended to thrust in time past, and his owner has not kept it confined, he shall surely pay ox for ox, and the dead animal shall be his own. If a man steals an ox or a sheep, and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox, and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in, and he is struck so that he dies, there should be no guilt for his bloodshed. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He shall make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox, a donkey, or a sheep, he shall restore double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal, and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns, so that stacked grain, standing grain, or the field is consumed, he who kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. If a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep, and it is stolen out of the man's house, if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he put his hand into his neighbor's goods. For any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, a sheep, or clothing, or for any kind of lost thing which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whomever the judge condemns, whoever the judges condemn, shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep, and it dies, is hurt, or driven away, no one seeing it, then an oath of the Lord shall be between them both that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's goods. And the owner of it shall accept that, and he shall not make it good. But if, in fact, it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to the owner of it. If it is torn to pieces by a beast, then he shall bring it as evidence, and he shall not make good what was torn. And if a man borrows anything from his neighbor, and it becomes injured or dies, the owner of it not being with it, he shall surely make it good. If its owner was with it, he shall not make it good. If it was hired, it came for its hire. Some pretty detailed laws there. And when you set up a country, a nation, community, you have to deal with this kind of stuff. So a big picture, keep in mind as we go through the book of the law, what is God's purpose for this law? That's a big question, one of the toughest questions for a Christian. Why did God write the law? There's three reasons. The first reason is to create a people that did the right thing. So God said to them, uh, if you will be my people, I'll be your God. I'll make you a holy nation. I'll make you a people who does the right thing. And in the fallen world, to create a holy nation, you have to do something with sin. So the law was given to restrain sin. That's the first use of the law. God gave it to restrain evil men people who steal, so that they could have a community that uh, evil was not allowed to flourish. So that's not, that's for everybody in a sense. That's specifically for the people of Israel, but just sort of morally it's saying there are things bad and God said don't do them. But then the second more specific one is to show that you don't get along with God. God said don't do this and you did it. And it was to show Israel specifically that the law was too hard for them to keep. Which means they needed someone to fix it for them. And so the law points to Christ. It points to someone who can fix the lawbreaker. It also shows us when we read it, we see ourselves in the law. and We see how we don't keep God's commands. And we don't match God's character. The laws may not be written to us directly as Americans. But we can see it reflecting God's character. And we can see us not reflecting it. So it points us to Christ. And then finally, once you have come to Christ, you look back at the law and you see the third use of the law, which is to guide you. Guide you to what? To look like Christ. You see, the law is a reflection of God's character. When God's character meets Israel, the law is produced. So some things have changed since then, but God hasn't. And so the law is a guide. It's not a law anymore for us, but it's a guide to be like Christ. So in this passage specifically, we see God's view on how his character interacts with property. God has granted property rights to man. And loving your neighbor, remember Jesus said everything is summed up by loving your neighbor and loving God. Loving your neighbor includes loving his property. This leads to conflict and the need for restitution. But God also has property. God has property rights over us, and we have violated those property rights. We have stolen from God, but Christ has made restitution, and we respond by being givers instead of takers. So three things here as a way forward. I was listening to someone speak the other day, and I thought, they should tell me what they're going to say, so I know where they're going. So we're going to talk about loving your neighbor through his property. Then we're going to talk about loving God through his property. And then we're going to talk about how God loves us. When we fail to do those things. So love your neighbor through his property. And God says, here's what it looks like to love your neighbor. Or if you made a mistake, how to fix it. So the first thing is stealing, or it all encompasses stealing. So we think of stealing as always malicious, but stealing means you diminish or cause your neighbor's property to be diminished. You made him have less. There's different ways to do that. It covers sort of all those examples. You cause your neighbor to have less, and it doesn't because you paid him for it. You reduce his property. The first way to do that we see in 22 verse 1, through theft. The most obvious way to reduce someone's property is to take it away from them. What we would call stealing or robbery. So in 22, 1, if a man steals an ox or a sheep, and of course in context, this is what people had back then. They didn't have VCRs or cars, an ox and sheep. And we can apply it to us as, as we see fit. If he steals an ox or sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he should restore it. uh, Five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Now, the first thing it tells us we said, they're property rights. It's their property. It's not your property. It's not anyone else's property. In fact, anyone that takes this is stealing. And that, of course, can apply to neighbors, governments, whoever. People own their possessions, and God says they should own them. That may not be so radical for us right now, but other places in the world, that is fairly radical. Uh, the idea of communism is the opposite of that. It's saying the government or the community owns everything. Now, when you think of a commune or a socialist uh, interaction, it's often that the community owns it. And so when we talk about the nation that God has set up, remember, we haven't gotten to what Christians should do. We're just talking about the way God interacts with the world. He has granted property rights to individuals. No sense, says, if a man takes from his neighbor, one person, you are allowed to own property, to own things. And if someone takes those things from you, God says that's violation of the law. It's breaking the law. But notice he does qualify it, and we do need to be careful about property. He says if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there should be no guilt for his bloodshed. But if the sun has risen on him, there should be guilt for his bloodshed. There's a difference between people and property. Remember the last passage, if you killed somebody, you are killed. Now, this passage clarifies that, and it says if they're stealing, there's only one reason, one way that you can get away with killing a thief. That's if they break in the middle of the night. Now, in English law, that's actually a, a clarification. So in English common law, they define uh, burglary as the breaking and entering the house of another in the nighttime with the intent to commit a felony therein. Uh, in California, they they distinguish between breaking in at night and breaking in there the day. Even in American law, we understand that when you break into someone's house at night, it's different than the day. And so the Bible says the same thing. Why? Well, when you are in your bed at night and you're sleeping and someone kicks in your front door, you don't know what's happening. And you may react with more force than necessary because you don't know who it is, you don't know what they're doing, you don't know what... What they're armed with, there's a lot. You don't know what's going to happen. And so it says here, you kill them. You're not not at fault. But if they break in during the day, it says, if the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. That means it's daytime. You can identify the thief. You can call for help because people are awake. You can see what they're doing. You can see if they're armed. The goal for a thief, and this sometimes runs against us, is not to kill him. Why? Because life is more important than property, even criminal life. It doesn't say that he was doing the right thing and you made a mistake. It says he's coming into you, he's coming to steal stuff from you. Don't kill him. Like, well, it's my stuff. It's his fault. He shouldn't have broken in. No, life is precious, and it's more precious than your things. Now the contrast here is saying, what, what's, what if they broke in during the day and they had a weapon, they were trying to kill you? A judge would say, okay, in this case, it was during the day, but it was self-defense. The, the concept being nighttime is dangerous. And our laws say the same thing. There's a threat there. There's confusion, there's a risk, and so you can respond appropriately. The daytime, there's less risk. People are up, people are awake. So it's saying when there's lower risk, you avoid killing. In fact, you're held guilty if you didn't have to kill them, but you did. Life is more precious than property. And so it says, if the sun is risen on him, there should be, he shall make full, uh, he's, and he's killed, you're guilty. But if he's caught, he shall make full restitution. And if he has nothing, then he should be sold for his theft. God is setting up a society where there's no prison. You see that? No jails. You get caught stealing. You work it off. And we talked about that two weeks ago. How do you work it off? Six years maximum. Uh, You're to be taken care of. You're to be treated well. And at the end of the six years, you're to be given property so that you can start your new life again. It's rehabilitation. It's reconciliation. And just to recap, putting someone in prison for five years does the opposite of that. So God is setting up a society where there are no prisons. So some of us have, have brought up that we should get rid of prisons. And everyone's like, that's impossible. Well. Maybe, but at one point in history, it was not impossible, and God envisioned a community where there were no prisons, where thieves worked off their debt, and when they were done, they were done. The point being to rehabilitate your neighbor. You see, the thief was your neighbor. We don't think of thieves as neighbors, do we? They may be bad neighbors, but they're still neighbors, and a community works when all of your neighbors, the good ones and the bad ones, are productive citizens. Productive members of the community. And that's what God wants. He doesn't want thieves to be killed. He wants them to make good what they stole and be rehabilitated. To work it off. Well, that's the easy one, stealing. We all know that's wrong, and none of us are going to do that, right? But God says there's more to stealing than just taking something that's not yours. There's also negligence. If a man opens a pit or a man digs a pit and does not cover it and an ox or a donkey falls into it, whose fault is it? we would say, well, he let his donkey wander away. He shouldn't have let his donkey come into my property. My property, I dug the pit on my property. His donkey came over to my property and fell in. God says, love your neighbor, don't dig pits, and leave them open. And if you do and the the donkey or the ox dies, you divide it. You make it good. You sell your ox and you divide both of them. So there's a, there's a culpability to negligence, even on your property. If it was known the ox tended to thrust in times past and his owner has not kept it confined, he should surely pay ox for ox and the dead animal should be his own. Now you remember before where it kills a person, there's a much higher thing, much higher cost. So he's, he's qualifying. He's showing what justice looks like. And justice is not the, is not a standard that never changes. There are factors that can be played in here. But when you steal something or when you call somebody to lose property, justice means restoring that property, making it good again. You dig a pit, someone's animal falls into it. You pay them for that. You restore them. And it also means that you need people to help you do that. You and your neighbor usually can't figure that kind of stuff out, can you? You need judges. God says, God sets up judges. And he says, you're going to need people to help you figure out these disputes, to help you solve disputes. There's no feuds. How do feuds start? One guy does something to another guy, and that guy gets him back, and they kind of go back and forth. You know, the Hatfields and McCoys. Well, God is saying here is, no, go to the judges. He says, if a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal and it feeds on another man's field he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. If fire breaks out, catches in the thorns. So they would burn their fields often to to clear them out. If it spreads, he shall make restitution. You may have thought it was an accident and it may have been an accident, but if it diminishes your neighbor's property, you make it up. I don't know how this applies exactly, But let's say there's a tree in your yard that you know is unsound and a storm comes along and it falls and lands on your neighbor's house. How would you apply this? I don't know. I'll let the Holy Spirit apply it. But then there's something further. Safekeeping. If a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep and is stolen out of the man's house. So here's a situation where you're going out of town. There are no safes. There's no banks. There's no safety deposit. You have valuable things. You give them to your neighbor to keep for you. You know, you've gone out of town and someone takes care of your dog. That's what it's talking about. can't take your dog with you, so you let your neighbor take care of it. But a thief broke into his house and stole your stuff. You see there's a complication here because it's not in your possession. You let somebody else take care of it. So if the thief is found, he shall pay double. Problem solved. But if the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's good. You gave them something, and they say it was been stolen. And they're like, ah, uh, was it? Was it stolen? Or did you steal it from me? Fall <laughs> into your wallet. So you take it to the judges. You, the first suspect is the person who had it, the neighbor who had it. It's the first suspect. He's taking to the judges. Why? Because he assumed responsibility for the goods. And by assuming responsibility, he becomes the first suspect when they're lost. So it's taken to the judge. It's brought before them and God. And it says, if a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep, and it dies, is hurt, or driven away, no one seeing it, then an oath of the Lord shall be, brought, shall be between them both. I think maybe some of us have been in the situation. You gave us something, it disappears, and no one knows what happens to it. Who's How are you, how you supposed to know? What this is saying is you go before God, God saw it. Now that isn't how, that's not how we think of things because God is not really connected with our daily lives. But this passage is saying, an oath of the Lord shall be between them and them both, that he's not put his hand into his neighbor's goods, and the owner of it shall accept that, and he shall not make it good. The understanding being that if he's lying, God will take care of him. And you're supposed to be okay with that. That requires a couple things. One, that you believe God sees everything and is involved in life and that you can trust him to take care of things and that you don't need to pursue this sort of vigilante justice we talked about last week. God sees, God cares, God will take care of it. But if, in fact, it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to the owner of it. Do you notice what happened there? He didn't steal it. Somebody else stole it. Who pays the neighbor back? the one who had taken it for safekeeping. But he didn't steal it. Well, he shouldn't have taken it for safekeeping then. It's saying if you assume responsibility for something, you assume a higher responsibility than if you owned it. Because your neighbor, whether you stole it or somebody else stole it, he doesn't have it. Whatever you did to allow it to be stolen hurt your neighbor. And so loving your neighbor says, I didn't steal it, but it was in my possession when it was stolen, so I'll pay it back so that your neighbor receives what he gave to you. That's a high standard, isn't it? Yes, because it's love your neighbor, not just do right. Love your neighbor means restore to them what was lost, if you had any part in it. Now, there are mitigating circumstances. If, in fact, it's stolen from him, if it's torn to pieces by a beast, right? Thinking back to this time, you can't control bears coming out of the woods or wolves or things like that. You're not going to go fight a bear to save a sheep. Unless you're David. If it is torn to pieces by a beast, then he shall bring it as evidence, and he shall not make good what was torn. You see those mitigating circumstances? How does that affect our view of justice? It means you need to look at the situation. And just because something was lost doesn't make it easy. Justice is complicated. You need judges. You need honest judges who are seeking the good of the community to evaluate cases and do what's best for people love your neighbor. Does the justice system love its neighbor? When it doesn't, it fails. When it has blanket mandatory sentencing, does that sound like mandatory sentencing? I don't know. I look at that. It's saying take into account mitigating circumstances. The goal is not to punish people. The goal is to restore people, to get them back to where they were, to get the stuff back to the neighbor. And we do that as much as possible. If you borrow something, if a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it becomes injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall surely make it good. Now, if that's not applicable, you ever borrowed something from your neighbor and you broke it? You gave it back, you're like, man, I'm sorry, it's broke the first time you gave it to me. You replace it. And then it goes back and says, if, if you burn his field, if it, if it grazes in the other field, you don't just give him back what he lost. You give him the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. You borrow an old lawnmower and you break it, you buy him a new lawnmower. If, and what God is saying is if you don't want that to happen, fine, don't borrow stuff. If you're not going to love your neighbor, don't borrow his stuff. Loving your neighbor means going above and beyond to take care of them. It means taking care of your neighbor. And he may have lent you something that was one second from breaking. I remember I borrowed a lawnmower from Rob. I don't know if I actually made this up to you, but the first time I pulled the cord, the cord broke. I did fix it though. Good, no, justified. <laughs> the first time I pulled it, the cord was broken. Now, whose fault was that? It's his fault. But if I didn't want to assume responsibility, I shouldn't have borrowed it. I don't think I borrowed a new one to go before the judges. <laughs> The point being, it doesn't matter if it broke the first time you used it. It was their property and it was good when you got it from them. And so you restore it. God is saying, here's how you live in community together. And if a man borrows anything uh, and if the owner is not with it, but if the owner is with it, he shall not make it good. In other words, the owner was there, it was his responsibility. And if it was hired, it came for its hire. You hire a contractor, he comes to your house and he breaks one of his tools, who replaces the tool? The contractor does. It's part of it. You see, We've assumed a lot of things about justice that the Bible's already spoken about. That's important to understand that the moral code, the moral law that we live by, Christians and non-Christians, is not new. It's part of the fabric of the universe. And so everyone understands that a contractor pays for his own tools. Where'd that come from? Well, this is showing us it came from God. Concept of justice and fairness comes from God. That's why we study the law, to see that. And so God gives restitution principles. So love your neighbor through his property. You diminish his property. There are principles for restitution. You restore the loss completely. You cause the loss, you restore it completely. But sometimes that's not enough. You also make up for the damages depending on your culpability. So a thief breaks in and steals an ox. There's nothing good about it. There's no accidents there. It was deliberate, it was evil, it was intentional. And so he says he pays five oxes for one ox and four sheep for one sheep. Why is that? Well, for one, oxen were how you worked. You take someone's ox away, there's no more work done. I just noticed that McDonald's was being renovated. They're not just paying for the cost of renovations. They're paying for the cost of not being open. Every day they're not open, I don't know how many hundreds of tens of thousands of dollars they're losing. So when you steal a contractor's tools, You don't just give him his tools back. What about all the work he missed when you had his tools? So we apply that principle of it's not just restoring what you took. It's restoring the damage it caused. It's so high for a thief for a couple reasons. One, they came into your property and took stuff from you. And secondly, we don't want them to do that anymore. Stealing robbery is the worst, so there's a deterrence there to it. To deter people from doing it more but we do make up for the loss and make up for the damages. That's justice. It's not one for one. It's one for whatever you took. And it's to deter criminals, it's a threat. This is all a threat here, you notice that? Do wrong, you pay. Don't love your neighbor like you should, you pay for it. So the law, the first use of the law is to restrain evil. It's to show us who God is, to show us justice, and to restrain evil. Now, many of us may feel that we're honest people. We may go above and beyond to make sure that we never borrow without replacing. We've never stolen. We feel like we're honest people. But that's only with people. You see, this is reflecting something bigger. So it's love your neighbor through his property, but it's also love God through his property. Remember, the whole law of the prophets hangs on what? Love God and love your neighbor. How does this mean loving God? The law was given to Israel to show them how to be like God. He says, I will make you a holy nation. He says later, Be holy, for I am holy. Okay, well, who is God? What does this passage tell us about who God is? It tells us that God cares about property. Why? Because God is a property owner. We talked about Psalm 24 1. We read it at the beginning of the service. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. That's a deed. God has a deed to everything. So when he tells us to take care of property, it's because he takes care of property. He owns things. The divine pattern is to show us who God is and how we are to relate to him. The law is not just for people. It's not just for how you deal with your neighbor. It's how you deal with God. So do you break into God's house and steal an ox or a sheep? Of course not. Well, will a man rob God? What a ridiculous question. Of course not. How could you even rob God? Where's his house? Where's his property? Yet you have robbed me. In what way have we robbed you? That's, that's not true. God says, In tithes and offerings, you've cursed with a curse. Now, I'm not preaching on tithing, it's not what this is about. The concept is here is you can rob from God. It may not feel like it because you can't see God and you can't see his property boundaries. And what the Bible is saying is open your eyes and see that he owns everything. And if you take from him what's his and not yours, you're robbing God. And it gives the example here, tithes and offerings. Now in the Old Testament, tithes and offerings in the law were given to God's house to care for the priests, the Levites. When they withheld those, God was saying, you're withholding them from me. Why is that stealing? Because it was God's. It was like rent. God says, Here's everything, and I want you to pay me rent. You don't own the house you're living in, it's my house. And you're going to pay rent, and the rent is called tithes and offerings, and you give it to the temple to take care of the priest. So when you withhold your rent, what is that called? It's called stealing. You said, I have the money, but I'm going to keep it for myself and not give it to my landlord. That's stealing. So when you don't give back to God what he's required of you, that's stealing. And that's what the Israelites had done. They had robbed God. It's What the concept here is you're taking ownership of things that are not yours. Now, what has God given you? What has God given you? How about, for one, your life, your body, your family, your property? You don't own it. So when you act like you own it, you are breaking into God's house in the night time, and stealing it. When you say, I can do what I want with my stuff, that's robbery. You're a thief. You've stolen what is God's. You've taken ownership of it, and you don't care what God wants. You're going to decide what happens to it. But it goes on. So we can steal from God by keeping what is his, taking ownership of what is his, saying, it doesn't matter what God wants. I'll do what I want because I own my body, I own my property, I work for it. But look, its stealing is not just taking something that's not yours, it's also negligence or accidents. That's also stealing. Misusing or damaging someone else's property. Guess who owns your body? Not you, God does. So when you misuse or damage your body, you're misusing and damaging God's body. And this text is saying you've taken something from God. You've used what he's given you in a way that was not meant to be used. You've been negligent. You've used it for yourself. You let someone borrow a lawnmower, and you say you can borrow it all summer, and you notice that they always leave it outside. What happens when you leave tools and stuff outside? Now, they weren't stealing it. They're going to give it back, but they're breaking this law here. They're allowing the property that belongs to you be damaged, to be reduced through negligence. Are you doing that? Oh, you're not breaking your neighbor's lawnmower. You would pay that back, but you'll break God's stuff. You'll break your body. You'll neglect yourself. You'll neglect your money. You'll neglect everything. You'll neglect relationships. You know, relationships are a gift to you from God. When you neglect your relationships, it's like digging a pit and letting your relationship fall into and saying, oh, I didn't know they were going to walk over there. Neglecting what God has given you, letting it fall apart, body, relationships, money, everything, is breaking the law that God has given here. I'll use my wife as an example. I let her borrow a book sometimes. And one time, I'll admit it was maybe one time, she left it on the counter and if you live in a house with a bunch of kids, leaving stuff on the counter is what? They, by the time I got the book back, was, I didn't get the book back. I was like, I'll just buy a new book. She didn't intentionally pour syrup on it. She didn't pour syrup on it at all. One well, of the kids did. She didn't leave it in a puddle of water. The kids left it in a puddle of water. But what's the principle here? Now, I keep on reminding her of that, even though, you know, it's a public confession. that doesn't happen that much. But what's happened there? Whose book was it? It's mine. Did she steal it? No. Did she try to hurt the book, to hurt me? No. She just didn't take care of it. Are you caring for God's things like they're God's things? Or are you deciding how to use God's things for yourself, your money, your body, your relationships? Do you, do you watch them as a way to serve yourself or to serve God? And of course we realize we're not caring for them like they're gods. But look at the principle. What does restitution say? If you're a thief, five oxen for an ox. What have you stolen from God? You owe five times that much back. If it's caught in your hands, we're double. Restitution for what you've taken from God is so staggering, you can never pay it back because you're still doing it. You're still stealing from God right now. Tomorrow you'll take things that God has given to you and use them for your own ends. And so the debt builds and builds. Some people think, I'll give money to the church. That's like owing a million dollars and paying the interest. You still owe the million dollars. See, every time you steal, it compounds. God is giving us a principle here. If this thief didn't get caught and stole from somebody else, he now owes 10 oxen. He doesn't say, well, I'll just pay the five and I'm good. He still owes the other five. So as we continue to steal from God, to neglect God's gifts to us, the debt builds. And starting to do what's right doesn't take care of what you did wrong. So God says to give. You don't give. You build debt. God says care for your relationships. You don't. Even practically, we know that relationships don't just get healed the minute you start caring for them. You see the debt that builds up? So we owe God so much money, so much property damage that we can never account for it and we can never make up for it, no matter how much money we give, no matter how much service we provide. We can never work our way out of it because we haven't stopped stealing. We haven't stopped taking, which brings us to our third point. God has a goal, and that is the restoration of his people. And if they can't do it themselves, then what does God say? I'll do it. So love your neighbor, love God, but you can't, so God loves you. And God's love restores. You see, your debt is accruing, so you need someone to pay it off. And we always think of Christ paying our debt how? By dying for us. But that's, that's sort of accounting for a different punishment. That's for hate. That's for murder. That's for rejection of God. What about the stealing? Because the death penalty is not for stealing. In Psalm 22, Jesus quotes this on the cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. What was that payment for? He hadn't died yet. He's paying back your property damage. Isaiah 53 says, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's still alive. What is he being oppressed and afflicted for? He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Often the Bible talks about the suffering of Jesus. Not just the death of Jesus, which is the ultimate payment, but the suffering of Jesus. When you see Jesus suffering on the cross, it's because you neglected your relationships. When you see him suffering on the cross, it's because you used your body the way you wanted to. So he was nailed to the cross. He wasn't shot in the back of the head. He wasn't put under the guillotine. He wasn't quickly executed. He suffered and died so that he could pay back our debt that had been accruing and that would accrue. But that's not all. See, he he wiped the debt clean, even the extra that we owed, but you know what else he did? He reverses the law. You see, we owed a debt that was so big that he had to pay for it and he did. But then he turns around and he gives us the increase. See, the thief was supposed to give the owner five oxen. Christ pays that and turns around and gives it to us. In Ephesians 2, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, thieves made us alive together with Christ, canceled our debt, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. When He says the riches of His grace, don't meet, don't think just spiritual things. That's physical things too. Maybe not here, but eventually you will be li- you are lifted up in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The thief doesn't have to pay the debt, and instead gets returned a hundredfold what he stole. That's what Christ has done for us. He's raised us up. He's going to show us the exceeding riches of His grace. He's reversed the law, so that not only do we not pay the debt, we receive the benefits. You see, the law wasn't enough to do anything except condemn. What does love do? It restores. It builds up. And so Christ's love for us not just restores us, it builds us up. It returns the stuff we stole to us a hundredfold. Jesus says, whatever you've lost for me, family, friends, lands, you'll get a hundredfold back. What's our response to this? You see, our human response is to continue to steal. What is the gospel calling us to do right now? Well, first of all, stop stealing, of course. But love is not just stop doing wrong, it's do good. Our response to his work for us is faith. So after, after he says he raises up in heavenly places that in ages to come, we might show the exceeding riches to us, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not of works. The more you work, the more in debt you are. Your works are like stealing from God. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. The more you try to do it for God, the more you owe him. So how do we get the benefits? By faith, not of works. We trust Christ to take care of all the good works, and we get them. For by grace, you're saved through faith, not of works. But that changes us. God had a purpose for Israel. It was to save them. It was to give them the law. And it was to make them into a holy nation. To create a new people. God has the same purpose for us. He saved us. He gives us the law to show us how bad we are. But he doesn't leave us there. He creates something in us. God's purpose has been all along to reconcile people to himself. From the beginning till now. And so what he does is he doesn't do it the obvious way. He saves us, then he creates a new heart in us. And we respond. And how, what does that response look like? It means be like Christ. Ephesians continues, says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. But I thought it was not of good works. Not of works, lest you should boast. But you've been created for good works. What's happening? God did all the work, but he wants to restore you. Amen. He wants to make you a good neighbor. It's not just enough for God to say, I'll pay for your debts, you thief. He wants to make you into someone that everyone wants to live next to. He wants to make you into someone that he wants to live next to. You see, that's what going to heaven means. That's what the new creation means. It means a bunch of people that God wants to live with, to be next door neighbors to. And no one wants to be next door neighbors to a thief. And so God is rehabilitating us. How? Through joy. Zacchaeus, the wee little man. He was actually a terrible thief and an oppressive abuser of the poor. He was a chief tax collector. He was a mob boss. He was a kingpin. He oppressed everyone, but he heard about Jesus who came to see him. And Jesus stops and sees the top crook in the city and says, I want to stay with you at your house, thief, robber, terrible person. I'm going to come live with you. You see the gospel there? God going into our lives. And so he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. Why would Zacchaeus receive Jesus joyfully? Because Jesus was the only person in the whole world that received Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus knew that everyone hated him because they should have, but not Jesus. Jesus. And when Jesus invited him down and said, I want to come stay with you, Zacchaeus joyfully received him. We call that believing the gospel. God comes to you and you respond with joy that God will save you. But it doesn't stop there. Because of the joy that God had given him, Zacchaeus stood and said, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. He didn't do that so that Jesus would live with him. He did it because Jesus lived with him. He did it because he was happy, not because he was guilty. Paul talks about it. Romans 12 presents your body as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. Because you see what Christ did. In Philemon, Paul writes to a slave owner and says, take back this man. And if you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. And if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. Why? He says, because, he said, receive me as my own heart. It's the language Paul uses. Why was Paul willing to make up, to pay for somebody else? Because Christ loved Paul. Paul the murderer. Paul the thief. And when Paul received that, he said, I'll pay off somebody else's debt. That's no problem. Zacchaeus says, I'll pay fourfold what what I've taken. Nothing compares what Christ has done for me. The reconciliation that takes place when you give instead of take is Christ-like. MacArthur says, never are we more like God than when we forgive. And never are we more like Christ than when we pay someone else's debt so that reconciliation can take place. Church doesn't want your money. You want to give your money. Our covenant says to steward the resources that God has given me, including time, finances, gifts, and abilities. I will regularly support the ministry of the church through financial giving and service that is sacrificial, cheerful, and voluntary. You only give up your money and time cheerfully because you get something bigger Amen. or because you've gotten something bigger. Amen. A man says, "If you talk about shipbuilding, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. I don't need you to tell you to give. I don't need to preach untithing. I don't need to tell you to sacrifice. I just need to show you what Jesus did for you. And you'll want to do all those things. And when you don't want to, I'm just going to show you Jesus again. I'll show you Jesus suffering for your theft. I'll show you God raising you up with Jesus. And your natural heart response will to be give a few dollars, will to show up for a few hours, will to sacrifice, will to be changed from the inside out. How do people change? They look at what Jesus has done and they respond with joy. How do people give? They see what was given to them and they respond with joy. Are you a thief? Are you selfish? Are you stingy? Are you self-centered? Here's the answer. Stop looking at yourself and your money at your body, at your relationships, and look at Jesus on the cross suffering to pay back what you took. If you receive that, everything else is easy. Let's pray.